The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everybody. With stocks falling on this final day of April amid a flurry of mixed earnings and weak economic data, it's been a strong month for stocks, though. The Dow and S&P having their best month since 1987. The S&P's up about 12% right now. The Nasdaq's up nearly 15% for its best month since 2000. Let's check on the markets. As Scott just mentioned, uh, we're seeing these red arrows with the Dow down 330 points, 1.3%. But the Nasdaq's only down 55 points. Keep an eye on that one with Apple and Amazon on tap to report earnings after the bell. It's only trading lower by two-thirds of one percent. It's also been a historic month for oil. We've been covering it every day here. We began the month at 20 bucks a barrel, went all the way down memorably on that Monday to minus 37. And voila, we're back to almost $20 now, 16% today, $17.50 for WTI crude. These extreme moves uh, show just how severe the demand loss has been and the storage glut for the oil pit. But let's get to all of the action that is driving the markets today. And as always, we turn to Bob Bassani for that. Bob? And uh, we are a great month here. S&P is up 12%. Uh, We are just off the lows for the day. We started moving up about 15 or 20 minutes ago off of the lows. Look at the S&P 500 here, and you can see uh, not a bad day. Considering the last few days, uh, we've had tremendous gains. This is the last day of the month. You get some pension rebalancing. You sell some stocks here because of the big moves up that we had in the market overall. So not surprising we're having a weak day. Lagarde did not sound terribly optimistic over in Europe, too, by the way, and that European market was down as well. As for what's going on for the month, uh, all of the laggards have become leaders, and all the leaders were laggards. So everything flipped in the middle of the month, and that's because the real opening story came to dominate. So at the start of the middle of the month, energy and retail and banks were all getting killed and they've completely flipped around in the last two weeks. They're the leadership group now. In the middle of the month, consumer staples and utilities were the big leadership groups and now they're the laggards. So the market has flipped around. And Kelly, I think that's a very good sign. And uh, the last few days, by the way, we've seen tremendous amount of expansion uh, of the rally. The number, uh, the breadth of the market, three to one, four to one, five to one, a better advancing to declining stocks uh, in the last several days. Not today, but last several days. Back yeah, to you. no, you've been all over that, Bob. We appreciate it. I, I'm curious, as we reach the halfway point of earnings right now, what are the takeaways so far? Well, this is the weirdest, most confusing earnings season, and I've been doing this 23 years as the stocks correspondent that I've ever seen, and it's hard to make any sense out of the whole thing. It's just really confusing. But there's three main points that I would make about what we see here. Number one, uh, there's just a lot of contradictions. Some people are reporting great sales early on and then slowing down. Others are reporting terrible early part of the quarter and then picking up. Uh, it's hard to figure out. Most have been withdrawing their full year guidance. The majority of companies report have declined to provide any kind of full year guidance. That's 
creating all sorts of problems. And I, I, I don't think it's too aggressive to say analysts are really clueless. There is a ridiculously wide dispersion on the estimates because a lot of analysts are lazy. They have not updated their estimates from the middle of March. And so the number, the estimates are really, really wide at this point. So instead of earnings guidance, Kelly, we're getting sort of green shoot comments that's helping the market. So Google talked about a, a difficult quarter. The consumers were shopping less, but they're optimistic that the ad revenues were improving uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, Cummins for example, they came out, they talked about business ramping up slowly in April. And finally, Facebook also talked about signs of stability in the ad market. So usually we get guidance and numbers. We don't have any of that now. We just have some commentary. Back to you. Yes, and we'll go off that uh, as much as we can. Bob, thanks so much. Bob Bassani. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, the Fed announcing today that it's expanding its Main Street lending program to include more businesses and new types of loans. But are the Treasury and the Fed taking enough risk to help the economy? And are we seeing signs that they may not be on the same page? Let's bring in Steve Leisman. Uh, Steve, we've, we've learned a lot today. We have. Uh, yesterday, though, Kelly, I got to ask the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, and the Fed Chair essentially the same question. Are they taking enough risk to help the economy, especially getting money out to those small businesses and businesses that can't get money from PPP or uh, get money in some of the other lending facilities? Here's what the Treasury Secretary said. There are people who have said, you know, I should price this so that you know, we lose all of our money so that we, we support these markets. The $450 billion are not grants. So they are money that I invest in these facilities to create credit support. So I think it's pretty clear if Congress wanted me to lose all of the money, that money would have been designed as subsidies and grants as opposed to credit support. Now, the Treasury Secretary said he's not investing money like a pension fund or a private equity fund. Uh, under some scenarios, the Treasury could lose money, some it could make money, and others it could break even. Now, I asked a similar question of Fed Chair Jay Powell at the press conference yesterday. We can do what we can do, and we will do it to the absolute limit of those powers. We will we'll keep at it, and uh, you, I just want people to know that we'll, we will be at it with, with the legal authorities that we have until we get through this thing. We will keep using our authorities. But there are authorities that we don't have, and uh, there may be a need for those authorities to be used as well as ours. So are they taking enough risk? Here's two programs compared. Both use $75 billion of equity from the Treasury. The corporate, the investment-grade corporate bond program, that's leveraged 10 to 1, so it's 750. But the Main Street lending facility, even after being expanded today, that's leveraged only 8 to 1, and that's worth only $600 billion. And uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell said yesterday, hey, uh, if you can't pay this loan back, maybe this is not the facility for you. They did expand it today. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has more money, Kelly, that he can maybe add to it. But right now, the debate is, are they taking enough risk with huge consequences here for the outcome for the economy? So, Steve, you know, at a time when people are looking at, for this as the next big program to open, I just assumed, I mean, one of the hallmarks of Jay Powell being at the Fed, ironically, in this twist of history, is that he's a good friend of the Treasury Secretary's at a time when they need to coordinate very closely. Is there a, a bigger rift there than we might have expected? I don't know. My reporting does not reveal necessarily a rift, maybe some differences of opinion, maybe some questions about how all of this will be judged with the outcome. Remember Hank Paulson with the TARP, along with uh, Timothy Geithner, the Treasury Secretaries, they were able to get a profit from the TARP. Now, is that the measure you should be looking for? You could argue, Kelly, that 
the Treasury Secretary did his job if the Treasury loses all the money, not through fraud, but through trying his darndest to get as much money out as he could. Other people politically may judge the Treasury Secretary this way, that, hey, he got his money back. And that's really the nut of the question as to whether or not there's some business owner out there that is or is not going to get a loan based on the risk that the Treasury Secretary decides to take yeah. with the taxpayer's money. And now, of course, Treasury has to figure out whether to look in, you know, this whole ex extinguishing China's debt. I imagine we haven't heard from them on that yet. I know that uh, Larry Kudlow just denied it, but uh, that, that's going to certainly... No. Yeah. Right. Well, all right. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Steve, thank you, sir. Good to see you. We appreciate it. Steve Leesman for us. Thanks. These unprecedented measures that the Fed and Treasury have taken have given them both some life this month. The question now is, will this showering of trillions in April bring economic and investing flowers in May? Joining me now are Jack McIntyre, the Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Brandywine, and Margie Patella, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Um, Jack, I'll just start with you. So in a nutshell, is the stock market telling us that we're about to get better economic news, even though we're in the middle of a deluge of, of bad news right now? Yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, the market's forward looking. I think it's interesting because I actually think there's probably a little too much greed in the equity market now, but you've got still fear in the real economy. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Certainly, equities are telling you that we are going to start to see an uptick in economic activity. But, you know, that's going to be yet to determine the time frame of that and what what degree we're going to see the uptick in the real economy. Right. So what is your base case right now? I mean, what do you think the market's pricing in? Oh, I think the market's probably pricing in some version, maybe not a V, but a U hmm. coming out of this. And, and I think it's probably a little too uh, aggressive uh, in that. My, my view is that, hey, clearly we're going to get some type of uptick in economic activity, given that the economy basically stopped. But, you know, it's not going to be a V. It's going to be, you know, we throw out sort of a uh, a reverse J or something to effect, you'll get a recovery, but then we're going to have to kind of for a more gradual uptick. Yeah, but Margie, it's interesting that everybody seems to have the same point of view, which is, you know, I, I was just pointed out that the consensus thinks the stock market is ahead of itself and the economy won't be as strong. You know, what if that consensus is wrong? What if the stock market is right? Well, I think the uh, stock market right here is really driven by short-term, a lot of trading-oriented money back and forth, a lot of big swings up and down, rather than the fundamental direction. And I think that uh, really what we're going to see over the next few months is a market that goes up and down a lot and doesn't really make any big advances or go down. What I look at what the Fed has done is just provide a liquidity bridge from when the bottom fell out of most businesses giving them the liquidity to operate until we come out on the other side of the coronavirus and we start to see the business community healing, and uh, then we'll be in a position to look for higher earnings. But that's several quarters away at this point. Margie, that said, you guys are buying uh, some of these junk bonds uh, here that you think offer, you know, appreciation and, and you know, yields and, and uh, are attractive right now. This, as the Fed, of course, has said that it will step in and support that, those aspects of the market without having uh, launched anything major just yet. Yeah, well, I don't think you need anyone to really come into the high-yield market. If you look at, say, the top quarter, the top third of the high-yield market, those companies are in good shape. They have the liquidity to operate either positive cash flow or money on the books to operate uh, until their earnings improve and uh, will be not bankruptcy risks at all because they have fundamental good businesses. And those, I think, are pretty attractive because you can get a yield of 6%. A lot of those bonds are trading at 90 cents on the dollar. So over the next 12 months, you could be looking at approaching double-digit rates of return. 
that might be pretty attractive and pretty high competition against an equity market that is still sloshing around, uh, not going anywhere. And I guess implied in that is an economic recovery. Margie, can you give any names uh, or names that you wouldn't recommend uh, junk bonds in? Well, I think rather than specific names, I'd say that the weak sectors are, are still to be avoided. They aren't bargains, even at these very low prices. So we're avoiding uh, retailing, gaming, travel, uh, anything in the energy space. We okay. think the risk is much too high, so we're not looking at that. We're looking at industrials uh, in the healthcare space, uh, utility space, things like that, where they're going concerns. Sure. Jack, I, I know you didn't, didn't look like you liked my consensus comment, so I'll come back to you to, uh, <laughs> to, re- to respond. Yeah, because, hey, look at the bond market, you know, treasuries. I mean, treasuries, hey, in a world of it was truly healing, which, you know, equity markets are pricing that in, I think treasury yields would be higher. Uh, And they're not. And, yeah, I know the Fed's buying them. They cut back. But uh, I think that the bond market is more powerful signal than what equities are telling us. All right. Jack McIntyre and Margie Patel, thank you both talking markets with us today. Shares of Macy's, you just heard Margie say she's avoiding uh, the debt of junk-rated uh, retailers. Shares of Macy's are down off their lows about 5% right now. We just learned they're working on issuing debt to raise cash and plan to have all the stores reopened in about six weeks. CEO Jeff Gannett giving an update just a short while ago, then immediately hopped on the phone with our Courtney Reagan. Courtney does join me now with more of his comments. Courtney? Hi there, Kelly. Yes, so Macy's is planning to open 68 stores on May 4th, another 50 by May 11th. And then in six to eight weeks, hopes to have the entire fleet of Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Blue Mercury stores open. When I spoke with Jeff Gannett on the phone, I asked him point blank, will Macy's survive this? And he said, Yes, I firmly believe that. We have formats from off-price to luxury, a gamut of price points at a national level. I'm a 36-year veteran of this company, but I retain this optimism for our role in American retail. April online sales for Macy's were better than expected. Beauty, activewear, and home, including furniture, among the strongest categories. Gannett did say that Macy's is working on secured financing, possibly backed by inventory or its unencumbered real estate. In the webcast with Gordon Haskett Research, CFO Paula Price said its quick actions have kept cash burns to, quote, not much at all. She didn't quantify the level, but said it was below Gordon Haskett's $40 $40 million weekly estimate on average. Now, Gannett did also tell me Macy's will emerge all of this as a smaller company. That could mean more store closures, certainly a smaller sales base, and also a smaller workforce. He says, the last thing I want to do is unfurlough workers, bring them back, and then ultimately have to lay them off when we see how things plan out. Kelly? Courtney, so I'm curious what support they uh, and others might receive from this expanded Main Street facility. I know the National Retail Federation is very pleased with the details. Uh, They think more retailers will be able to benefit it by raising the employee cap to um, $15,000, billion in revenue. Maybe a company like Macy's could be a beneficiary. What did he say about uh, government support? Yeah, so I ask Annette directly, do you think the government should do more to help retailers like you in your position with thousands of employees, more than 100,000 employees, but that is also considered a fallen angel when you're looking at the debt standards? And he said, look, we've been actively involved with the library groups, was on the phone with Sec- Secretary Mnuchin. And Secretary Mnuchin, he said, we'll have more clarity in a couple weeks about that $450 billion program. And Macy's might eventually benefit from one of these government programs. But Gannett said, look, I can't count on that right Right now, I'm going to the private market, and we are in the process of securing that financing. Yep. 
Courtney, thanks. We appreciate it. Uh, great reporting. And again, the Macy's shares down about 5% now off the lows of the session. Coming up, they've doled out a billion dollars in PPP loan commitments to clients, including Junior's Cheesecake. We're going to talk to the CEO of Stiefel about what his clients are doing, how the industry is changing, and their role in the PPP program. Plus, as goes Apple, so goes the market. It's no exaggeration. We'll show you why not as the company gets set to report after the bell today. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Stiefel are off their lows, down about 6.5% today. They beat on revenue, but reported an earnings miss this morning. The company, in fact, is seeing record revenue in wealth management right now. Stiefel also has distributed about a billion dollars of PPP loan commitments. All this amid a pandemic which has dramatically reshaped how the company works. 90% of employees are now working remote, and the firm has expanded from eight primary trading desks to nearly 200 separate locations. For more on what the future of finance could look like post-coronavirus, let's welcome in Stiefel Chair and CEO Ron Krzyzewski. Ron, it's great to have you. Welcome. How are you, Kelly? Well, pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> Let me start with the, sort of the most controversial thing here. It's the PPP program. Um, you, you guys probably caught that you were name-checked by Junior's Cheesecake when he was uh, you know, explaining to us why he took the money but doesn't plan on playing, paying workers just yet in this whole big thing a few weeks back. Anyway, he was very grateful that he was able to quickly get the money at that point. What has the process been like for Stiefel, and how does it uh, either fit or not fit most of the conversation about how this program is going? Well, look, the PPP program uh, was intended to get money into the economy and get money into the hands like uh, Junior's Cheesecake. I mean, there was some, you know, confusion about when he was going to use it. But look, their, their, their stores are closed, and that was very important to do that. So I, I think the PPP program has, you know, been effective. There are cases where, you know, people got the money that really don't need it. And I think that uh, you've all done a good job of reporting on this, and I think that'll come to forgiveness. So my, my message on PPP is if you didn't really, if you took it uh, and you didn't really need it, don't ask for forgiveness. Oh, interesting. So, in other words, just pay the money yeah. back, you know, which is the other, other piece of the program. You know, what is the guidance for your employees when it comes to, to people who are asking for them? What is the underwriting process like? Are you worried that Stiefel uh, yourself is going to end up on the hook for any of this money? I mean, talk through those considerations. Well, no, I think, first of all, we, we worked in, uh, in a joint venture with someone. But regardless, uh, we followed the guidelines. Uh, the borrowers, it was, uh, it was on the borrowers to... Uh, to basically certify that they needed it and uh, was uh, up to the banks to process that. So I don't feel that that's the case. Again, I think that the issue here isn't going to be whether or not someone got a 1% loan. The issue is going to be who actually got it forgiven. So right. I'll, I'll stay with that. And I hope that 
that we come up with some rules and some guidelines to make sure that people, uh, the people that really need it are also the ones that are getting it forgiven. Yeah, and we're also seeing the Fed obviously coming out with some kind of innovative, different ideas as it prepares to roll out the Main Street funds. I want to move on and ask you about uh, something okay. just of, of personal interest, which is what is what is the future of the workplace going to look like? I mean, there's huge societal implications to this beyond just you know, how close you're sitting to your neighbor and whether, you know, the cubicle landscape of Dilbert is making a comeback. I mean, we had the CEO of Barclays say just yesterday he doesn't think there's ever going to be 7,000 people in a building again. What does that mean for commercial real estate, for architecture, for construction workers? Um, is there actually going to be a CapEx boom as companies have to reshape uh, their workplaces? Oh, certainly there's going to be some changes. I think that I still think that we have to get back, and I want to come back to this, but we have to come back to what were the actual numbers on this pandemic. Uh, because you can make the argument that there won't be, uh, you know, buildings anymore. But look at New York. I mean, New York was literally built on the subway system, mm -hmm. literally. If, if New York can't move the number of people in mass transit, then are, then are we going to have New Yorks anymore? You can, now you can take that down to buildings and sure. to offices and everywhere else. So I'm not ready to, uh, to write off buildings uh, as yet. We're working 90% remotely, and it works now. But I will tell you, there's a lot of esprit de corps, a lot of culture, and a lot of creativity that comes when people are together. Absolutely. So I, I take your point that we shouldn't assume that, you know, five or 10 years out, we're still going to be making decisions based on coronavirus. But in the meantime, you guys have to decide, even in terms of liability, right? What are those works? When are people coming back to work? What does that work workplace look like? I, what are your thoughts there? Well, there's huge challenges. I, uh, again, we want to keep our people safe. Uh, at some point, people are going to come back to work, and they're going to have to be protocols, and there's going to have to be understandings, not only the coronavirus, but maybe the next pandemic, whatever it is. But I, I, let, me, let, me, let me pivot for a second, Kelly, because I hear all these things about everything being done on the back end. What is the Fed doing on the back end? What about all these controls on the back end that we're doing to support the economy? You know, I live in St. Louis, and I want people to start focusing on this, and that is the big headline in St. Louis this week was that our third largest health care system furloughed 2,000 employees. Yeah. And I, want, and I don't hear anyone really talking about the fact that one of the, the businesses that are being the most impacted here and the businesses that are frankly going bankrupt are our hospitals. Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm willing to bet, yeah, I'm also willing to bet that you're going to be reading across the country health care workers being let go, while on the other hand, we're talking about not getting back together because we don't want to overwhelm our health care system. Mm -hmm. So you're what? saying, in other words, the, the emphasis right now on, hey, Ron, what's the future of the city going to look like is ignoring the fact that, that these hospitals are going under right now. What do you think should be done to, you know, in order to support that? You know, we've, we've seen the, these hangups uh, in Congress over whether to distribute more hospital relief funds through these uh, relief packages. Is that the, the best means forward? Well, no, the best, the best move forward is to get some testing to let it get back into the private sector so that the people at NEMA, the, you said the, the department stores or the restaurants, can do what they need to do to get the consumer back. It isn't about what the government's going to do. That's really not going to matter. If, if you say I can go to a restaurant tonight, that doesn't mean I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. It means I will go when I'm comfortable. And, and we have to be finding ways to get people comfortable to come back to work, people are comfortable to go to restaurants. Frankly, and this is the most important, we've got to get people to be comfortable to go to their own hospital, which they're not going to right now. 
And that is the issue, is yeah. that we've created a scenario where there's sharks in the water and everyone's afraid, and we need to we need to bring that back as we get more information. I'm not trying to downplay this, right. but we better be looking at the real issue. So you're going full Elon Musk here, or just, just a, a partial... I, I'm not. I, look, I, I believe. I'm just I, no, I. Well, look, I believe that. I believe that the the economy. If you tell me that we're going to have restaurants be at 25 percent capacity for the next year, my prediction is that every restaurant will go broke. Absolutely. I just you, you can't do that. So uh, this is an issue on the front end about how we get people comfortable. We need to restart the economy. We need to keep people safe. But we cannot be continually looking at what the Fed's going to do uh, to prop up an economy. That, that is not the long-term answer. Fair enough. And Ron, come back Sorry. anytime. We'll talk more about uh, what that path forward will look like. We appreciate it today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Ron Koshevsky is the CEO of St. Louis-based Stiefel Financial. Coming up, two big reports after the bell today, Apple and Amazon. Can Amazon top expectations after its shares have run up so much? And will Apple sound more optimistic than in the past? We'll discuss that. Plus, 30 million people have now filed for unemployment in the past six weeks, and now states are quickly burning through their funds. We're going to look at what they're doing next. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know at this hour. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says his country is past the peak of the coronavirus cases and on a downward slope. He will announce a plan next week to ease lockdowns. New York City's subways will shut down for four hours overnight so the cars can be disinfected. A growing homeless population has been crowding the trains. The USNS Comfort is leaving New York City today, one month after it arrived to help relieve hospitals. The 1,000-bed ship treated about 180 people and discharged its last patient on Sunday. It was great to have them here. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you so much. Sue Herrera. 30 million people are suddenly out of work and on unemployment, but states have been quickly burning through their unemployment reserves. And now they're turning to the federal government for a lifeline. Rahel Solomon joins me now with the latest on those efforts. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. From New York to California, 
States are quickly realizing that they're running out of money. In fact, California now becoming the first to tap into the federal unemployment trust fund, requesting uh, $348 million, although federal data shows that they could request up to $2 billion. New York officials saying there that they've requested a $4 billion loan. Massachusetts, $900 million in May, $300 million in June. Illinois, $1.2 billion. Connecticut, $180 million. So again, California now becoming the first to withdraw those funds. Wayne Roman at the Urban Institute telling me that he expects that Ohio, Massachusetts, and New York will also withdraw before July 1st. Although Michelle Evermore of the National Employment Law Project tells me, Kelly, that no matter how positioned a state was prior to coronavirus, they will all likely need to tap into these funds because the demand is just so great. Yeah, and we're seeing it grow by the week. Uh, in fact, Rahel, thanks. Rahel Solomon. Now, as the pandemic grips some of the nation's largest cities, some residents have had enough and are already leaving for good. Diana Olick joins me now with the story of one New Yorker's very difficult choice. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, Lindsay Marvel moved to New York because, in her words, you go big or go home. Well, She's going home to Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had turned down a program last year called Tulsa Remote that pays professionals to relocate there. Last week, she changed her mind. So he has so much to offer. Um, and so I, I decided not to do it. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened, um, Brooklyn, and it became a really scary place to be. I found that, you know, my rent was still the same. And, you know, what, what am I paying for? Everything is closed. I mean, I was living in complete fear. And I'm realizing that even more so now that I'm away, as I was driving away from the city, I just felt this like overwhelming relief. I mean, I was just so tense and scared. I mean, my neighbor died, who was always, you know, telling my dog hi. I mean, friends were seeing body bags from their windows, you know, and you're just in this survival mode. And I just, I just was terrified. Now, interestingly, Tulsa Remote says applications for their program have doubled in the last month. If you want to hear more from Lindsay, it's up on CNBC.com. Back to you, Kelly. We've seen it play out, Diana, in my neighborhood. Uh, the neighbors put their house for sale just before the shutdowns hit. Uh, had only one offer and not as much interest as they had expected. As, uh, just in the last two weeks, they've even with virtual open houses and, and people barely able to, to get a walkthrough, the offers are pouring in. They have cash buyers from nearby cities like Hoboken and New York. And I've, I've been very surprised at how quickly that's turned. Yeah, people just want to get out. They're afraid. And mostly they just don't know when it's going to end. And when you're paying super high rent for a New York City that is not open, you start to think about leaving. Yeah, it's true. Diana, thanks. Diana Olick in Washington for us today. Coming up, a bold move from the Small Business Administration has the lending community up in arms. We've got the details ahead. And shares of Tesla are jumping uh, after posting an unexpected profit and better-than-expected revenue. But they can't hold on to their gains. They've just turned negative about 1%. And it was the earnings call, in particular, as always, that's getting buzzed. CEO Elon Musk shared his strong view on the four shutdowns that are causing all this uncertainty. The extension of the shelter-in-place uh, or... Frankly, I would call it forcibly imprisoning people in their homes uh, against all their constitutional rights. That's my opinion. And breaking people's freedoms in ways that are horrible and, and, and wrong. Uh, and not why people came to America or built this country. What the f***? Excuse me. Um, people, it's outrage. It's an outrage. Um, so... Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Just showed you before the break how shares of Tesla had turned negative. Let's check on the whole markets right now. Uh, we're ending the month still uh, with a strong month, but with, uh, with red across the board. Dow's down 333. All 11 sectors are lower with energy, financials, materials leading the declines within the Dow. Uh, American Express, Raytheon, Chevron, and Disney are the big laggards. And we want to mention shares of Apple, which are trading higher today. It's bucking the trend as we await the quarterly report after the bell today. And even if you don't own shares directly, Apple has huge implications for the overall market and for earnings season. Let's get over to Dom Chu with more on that. Dom? All right, so Kelly, there is a reason why you have to care a lot about Apple if you're invested in the stock market in any way, shape, or form, especially when it comes to index investing. So Apple versus the S&P 500 on a one-year basis, you can see here Apple far outperforming what's been happening with the overall S&P. But take a look at the second biggest company in America, in the world, with regard to market cap behind only Microsoft. That's the reason why within the S&P, Microsoft has a 5.5% weighting, Apple a nearly 5% weighting, so it reports earnings after the bell today. And then Amazon also today, 4%, Alphabet 3%, and Facebook about 2%, the most important stocks to the market cap weighted S&P 500. Now, taking a look at other parts of the market that you could be invested in, in the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the QQQ, it's an 11% weighting. That's huge. In the tech sector spider, ticker XLK, it's nearly 20% of the weighting there. And right now, it's an 8% weighting in the Dow. By the way, it's jockeying with United Healthcare as the most important stock from a point perspective there. And then one more thing to note. Analysts at Refinitiv currently forecast that the S&P 500 will earn, in terms of earnings per share, $132 and change for full-year EPS. Of that, analysts say that $12.40 are forecasted to come from Apple alone, meaning that, Kelly, 9% of total S&P 500 earnings are just because of Apple. That's the reason why everyone's paying such close attention to that earnings report after the bell today. Back over to you. Okay, that was fascinating. I thought I knew they were important, Dom, but not, not that important. They're, tw- they're 20% of that, the tech ETF? Actually, the XLK, the S&P 500 technology ETF, that spider. Wow. It is a 19.5% weighting there. So even if you didn't think that you really owned Apple outright, if you own any of these index funds or communication services or tech ETFs, that sort of thing, Apple plays a huge part in many of those, especially when it comes to tech. Great stats. Don Banks, sure. Dominic Chu. And Apple did warn investors at the beginning of this pandemic that things were going to be rough. They even pulled guidance. But states are starting to gradually reopen now. So will that have Apple singing a better tune tonight? Let's bring in CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac. It's Steve, it's rapid fire time. I see you and I, I think know. we need to bring it back. Maybe we'll I miss try it so much. Uh, it's so good to see you. Like an around the horn thing, we get the screens going. Anyway, it, I know. it is. It's good to be One reunited. One day soon, I hope. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll try something, I promise. Um, so on the issue of Apple, they're always so pessimistic, aren't they? Is tonight going to be any different? Yeah, I think what we really got to look at is the pressure on Apple because we had these knockout earnings reports from Facebook and Microsoft and, and Alphabet already this week. And so the pressure is on for Apple to show that it can perform just as well during this pandemic as these other big tech companies and on top of that, China, the China exposure is a big story that you have to pay attention to. Apple is showing a lot of recovery signs there over the last couple of quarters after whiffing about a year ago. And now that's with all the store closings in China and the production issues uh, where all their iPhones and other products are made. Uh, that, that's going to be the real thing to look. Can they like hang on to those gains that they were clawing back at? in China over the last couple quarters. No, it's a great point. And is, is China going to be, you know, we hear, uh, we hear Steve Bannon this morning talking about, you know, holding China responsible for coronavirus when we, you know, have reports of 
since denied on the Washington Post about, again, you know, in using our debt as a weapon against them, you wonder, is Apple too reliant on China? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of, of their annual revenue or their quarterly revenue. And with stores closed, now it's starting to open back up. In fact, it, this is the test bed in China for Apple of how they're going to open up back when they come here. It's going to be interesting to hear on the call today if they put forward a plan for reopening the Apple stores here in the uh, United States and elsewhere in Europe and other countries that got affected later than China. And then on top of that, just the whole economic downturn has these questions about the price of Apple products, you know, these $1,000 iPhones at the top tier. But what I noticed was Apple has these uh, cheaper uh, suite of products that are really appealing and just as good. Last week, they launched the iPhone SE, which starts at 400 bucks, and it's just as good as the $1,000 iPhone 11 Pro. It has a smaller screen, but the internal components, it performs just as well as those top-tier iPhones. So those could be attractive things to continue to juice iPhone sales, even as we experience this economic downturn. Yeah. And, you know, the president said he spoke with Tim Cook a week or so back and that mm-hmm. Cook uh, himself expected a V-shaped economic recovery. And I wonder if that's true, because I think it would actually put him in the minority of most people. But it, I, I will be listening to see if their guidance in general echoes that point of view. Yeah. Or even if they have guidance, they already right, kind of right. dialed it back a little bit um, uh, in February when they did that initial warning. And I would not be surprised if, like everyone else that we've seen, they start pulling guidance And the other thing is the share buybacks. Uh, We all know that Apple spends so much money on share buybacks. Will it do what Google and slash Alphabet did earlier this week and say we're going to continue that? They have plenty of cash on hand to continue it. They're continuing to pay their workers. They're not laying people off. So they might have a little bit of a buffer there to say, hey, we're going to go ahead with these massive share buybacks anyway even though the environment is kind of against that. There's a lot of criticism around that. Yeah. So again, the quarter, the expectation is 6% drop in revenue, 11% drop in earnings. Um, Any other specifics uh, you're going to be looking at price points or, you know, unit types of sales, things like that this afternoon? Yeah, the, uh, well, back to China, 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 it's going to be the big one to look at because that's, they had the virus earlier than us. The shutdown was earlier than us. And that's a huge exposure there for Apple. So that's going to be the thing I'm watching for the most. And on top of that, any kind of plans about reopening the retail stores um, outside of China is going to be a big deal. And then looking forward, like down to the fall, we have to start thinking about the next round of iPhones. We already heard that report in The Wall Street Journal a few days ago that they're going to ramp up production about a month later than usual. And that could be uh, that could mean they're thinking demand's not going to be as high for these expensive phones and they're going to be promoting those cheaper products uh, instead. Yeah. The Iliad and Amy Poehler on the shelf behind you, Steve. I'm going to have some yes. questions. <laughs> when you they, uh, Amy Poehler is my wife. That's my wife's book. <laughs> Amy Schumer, I mean. Amy Poehler, too. All right, the shot's falling out. we got to let go. Uh, Steve, thank you, sir. We'll see you soon. Steve Kovac. Good to see you, Kelly. Thanks. Up next, the SBA making a bold move to get smaller businesses access to PPP funds. We're going to get the latest on this polarizing decision, tell you what people are saying about it. Coming up, we'll also speak with the CEO whose company makes key parts for ventilators and says they're getting hit not just by the pandemic, but still by the ongoing trade war with China. The exchange will be right back.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Just showed you before the break how shares of Tesla had turned negative. Let's check on the whole markets right now. Uh, we're ending the month still uh, with a strong month, but with, uh, with red across the board. Dow's down 333. All 11 sectors are lower with energy financials materials leading the declines within the Dow. Uh, American Express, Raytheon, Chevron, and Disney are the big laggards. And we want to mention shares of Apple, which are trading higher today. It's bucking the trend as we await the quarterly report after the bell today. And even if you don't own shares directly, Apple has huge implications for the overall market and for earnings season. Let's get over to Dom Chu with more on that. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, there is a reason why you have to care a lot about Apple if you're invested in the stock market in any way, shape or form, especially when it comes to index investing. So Apple versus the S&P 500 on a one year basis. You can see here Apple far outperforming what's been happening with the overall S&P. But take a look at the second biggest company in America, in the world, with regard to market cap behind only Microsoft. That's the reason why within the S&P, Microsoft has a five and a half percent weighting, Apple a nearly five percent weighting. So it reports earnings after the bell today. And then Amazon also today, four percent, Alphabet, three percent and Facebook, about two percent. The most important stocks to the market cap weighted S&P 500. Now, taking a look at other parts of the market that you could be invested in. In the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the QQQ, it's an 11% weighting. That's huge. In the tech sector spider, ticker XLK, it's nearly 20% of the weighting there. And right now, it's an 8% weighting in the Dow. By the way, it's jockeying with United Healthcare as the most important stock from a point perspective there. And then one more thing to note. Analysts at Refinitiv currently forecast that the S&P 500 will earn, in terms of earnings per share, $132 and change for full-year EPS. Of that, analysts say that $12.40 are forecasted to come from Apple alone, meaning that, Kelly, 9% of total S&P 500 earnings are just because of Apple. That's the reason why everyone's paying such close attention to the earnings report after the bell today. Back over to you. Okay, that was fascinating. I thought I knew they were important, Dom, but not, not that important. They're, tw- they're 20% of the, the tech ETF? Actually, the XLK, the S&P 500 technology ETF, that's Spider. Wow. It is a 19.5% weighting there. So even if you didn't think that you really owned Apple outright, if you own any of these index funds or communication services or tech ETFs, that sort of thing, Apple plays a huge part in many of those, especially when it comes to tech. Great stats. Don Banks, Dominic Chu. And Apple did warn investors at the beginning of this pandemic that things were going to be rough. They even pulled guidance. But states are starting to gradually reopen now. So will that have Apple singing a better tune tonight? Let's bring in CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac. Steve, it's rapid fire time. I see you and I I think we need to bring it back. Maybe we'll I try miss it so much. Uh, it's so good to see you. Like at around the horn thing, we get the screens going. Anyway, it, it is it's good to be One reunited. Day soon, I hope. Yes, yes. We'll we'll try something, I promise. Um so on the issue of Apple, they're always so pessimistic, aren't they? Is tonight gonna be any different? Yeah, I think what we really gotta look at is the pressure on Apple because we had these knockout earnings reports from Facebook and Microsoft and, and Alphabet already this week. And so the pressure is on for Apple to show that it can perform just as well during this pandemic as these other big tech companies. And on top of that, China, the China exposure is a big story that you have to pay attention to. Apple is showing a lot of recovery signs there over the last couple of quarters after whiffing about a year ago. And now that's with all the store closings in China and the production issues uh, where all their iPhones and other products are made. Uh, that that's going to be the real thing to look. Can they like hang on to those gains that they were clawing back at in China over the last couple of quarters? No, it's a great point. And is, is China going to be, you know, we hear uh, we hear Steve Bannon this morning talking about, you know, holding China responsible for coronavirus when we, you know, have reports uh, 
since denied on The Washington Post about, again, you know, in using our debt as a weapon against them, you wonder, is Apple too reliant on China? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of, of their annual revenue or their quarterly revenue. And with stores closed, now it's starting to open back up. In fact, it, this is the test bed in China for Apple of how they're going to open up back when they come here. It's going to be interesting to hear on the call today if they put forward a plan for reopening the Apple stores here in the uh, United States and elsewhere in Europe and other countries that got affected later than China. And then on top of that, just the whole economic downturn has these questions about the price of Apple products, you know, these $1,000 iPhones at the top tier. But what I noticed was Apple has these uh, cheaper uh, suite of products that are really appealing and just as good. Last week, they launched the iPhone SE, which starts at 400 bucks, And it's just as good as the $1,000 iPhone 11 Pro. It has a smaller screen, but the internal components, it performs just as well as those top-tier iPhones. So those could be attractive things to continue to juice iPhone sales, even as we experience this economic downturn. Yeah. And, you know, the president said he spoke with Tim Cook a week or so back and that Mm -hmm. Cook uh, himself expected a V-shaped economic recovery. And I wonder if that's true, because I think it would actually put him in the minority of most people. But I I will be listening to see if their guidance in general echoes that point of view. Yeah. Or even if they have guidance, they already kind of dialed it back a little bit um, uh, in February when they did that initial warning. And I would not be surprised if, like everyone else that we've seen, they start pulling guidance and the other thing is the share buybacks. Uh, we all know that Apple spends so much money on share buybacks. Will it do what Google and Al- slash Alphabet did earlier this week and say we're going to continue that? They have plenty of cash on hand to continue it. They're continuing to pay their workers. They're not laying people off. So they might have a little bit of a buffer there to say, hey, we're going to go ahead with these massive share buybacks anyway even though the environment is kind of against them. There's a lot of criticism around that. Yeah. So again, the quarter, the expectation is 6% drop in revenue, 11% drop in earnings. Um, any other specifics uh, you're going to be looking at price points or you know, unit types of sales, things like that this afternoon? Yeah. The, uh, well, back to China, 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 yeah. it's going to be the big one to look at because that's, they had the virus earlier than us. The shutdown was earlier than us. And that's a huge exposure there for Apple. So that's going to be the thing I'm watching for the most. And on top of that, any kind of plans about reopening the retail stores um, outside of China is going to be a big deal. And then looking forward, like down to the fall, we have to start thinking about the next round of iPhones. We already heard that report in The Wall Street Journal a few days ago that they're going to ramp up production about a month later than usual. And that could be uh, that could mean they're thinking demand's not going to be as high for these expensive phones and they're going to be promoting those cheaper products uh, instead. Yeah. The Iliad and Amy Poehler on the shelf behind you. Steve, I'm going to have some yes. questions. <laughs> when you... they, uh, Amy Poehler is my wife. That's my wife's book. <laughs> Amy Schumer, I mean. Amy Poehler, too. All right, the shot's followed out. we got to let go. Uh, Steve, thank you, sir. We'll see you soon. Steve Kovac. Good to see you, Thanks. Up next, the SBA making a bold move to get smaller businesses access to PPP funds. We're going to get the latest on this polarizing decision, tell you what people are saying about it. Coming up, we'll also speak with the CEO whose company makes key parts for ventilators and says they're getting hit not just by the pandemic, but still by the ongoing trade war with China. The exchange will be right back.
welcome back. The SBA's decision to create that eight-hour window for small lenders last night has created a stir over potential loan prioritization. Kate Rogers is here with more on that. Kate? Hi, Kelly. Some in the banking community are asking why this was necessary and how this is even allowed. Remember, the program is first come, first served, and here the administration is being accused by some of tipping the scales with that reservation window. The SBA and Treasury said that the reserved processing time would enhance the e-trans system's performance for all and ensures access for smaller lenders and their customers. Did smaller lenders actually need this help? The most recent data from the SBA show that the vast majority of loans approved so far in this round have been by smaller lenders. Of the 960,000 loans approved through yesterday evening, more than 80 percent were from lenders under $50 billion in assets. We've reached out to the SBA repeatedly for clarification on why this was done beyond just easing up the e-tran system. Banking sources tell us they are seeing some relief in the e-tran logjam, but accuse the SBA of playing favorites at the expense of small business customers who bank with large lenders. And it's safe to say that the clock is ticking here with more than $90 billion already spoken for. About a third of this program's funding, businesses we know, Kelly, will want answers. You know, I wonder, Kate, if that's why J.P. Morgan uh, came out this morning and said, you know, hey, this is the proportion. I think I forget the numbers exactly. I said a lot of their loans were going uh, to small businesses. I think probably to emphasize that it's not just like they're lending to the big, biggest companies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we've been talking about this and if it's perhaps a, an overcorrection because a lot of the attention in the first round of funding, while small businesses did get money, we've been talking about the Shake Shacks and the, the Lakers of the world here who wound up getting access to this program. So could it be an overcorrection? Uh, remains to be seen. But I have seen some talk just uh, among some of my uh, Twitter followers that are saying, hey, if you actually wanted to do this right, limit it by loan size, not right. bank asset size, because that would ensure that actually true small business customers are getting this. But then the bigger question is, is that even allowed at all, right? Is the government supposed to be doing that? It's first come, first served. These businesses are eligible. These lenders are eligible. Whose decision is this? Yeah. No, it's been uh, been messy, uh, to say the least. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. My next guest is a small business maker of speakers, including speakers for ventilators using this pandemic. The CEO has received PPP funds, but says he's, quote, very concerned about what happens to American businesses after June 30th. Joining me now is Dan Degree. He's the CEO of Misco Speakers. And Dan, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Kelly. Can you clarify what your speakers do with regard to ventilators? I hadn't heard of that. Well, um, there is there in all medical equipment. There is some type of an alarm. Uh, we make speakers for um, patient uh, diagnostic equipment, ultrasounds, and in ventilators, they're used as an alarm speaker. And Misco is, in fact, the only U.S. company that builds um, ventilator alarm speakers in the United States. Wow. So, how has that affected your business? I imagine uh, demand for these components is as high as demand for the ventilators themselves, or at least uh, was it at a, at a period of time. Um, and what did you, how did you find the PPP process? How has that helped your business if it has? Well, the PPP process has been huge for us. Um, it started off a little rough. Um, we're a small company, 70 employees, and we bank with a large bank. And um, we had all of our documentation ready. Um, we were ready to go on the Friday, and, but the bank wasn't ready, and they weren't ready over the weekend. And finally, on Monday, they sent out an email, and they said, we're sorry, we're only servicing companies, nonprofits, and companies with under 50 employees. You'll have to look elsewhere. So we panicked. Um, we thought, what are we going to do? So um, fortunately, our CFO had a relationship with a community bank. Uh, we met with the community bank um, via via. Um, remote on Monday afternoon, um, submitted all of our documents on Tuesday morning. And by Tuesday afternoon, we had an SBA loan number and were fully approved. Wow. So we got approved um, very, very quickly. 
I think part of it was being prepared and part of it was being a little lucky finding the right bank. Absolutely. And you have about 70 employees, so I can see why you that 50-employee cap would have been a problem. You said one of the big uh, sort of double whammies you're facing is not just the shutdown of coronavirus, the effect on consumer demand, but the fact that your components were already facing, uh, is it price hikes because of the tariff war with China? Yeah. Um, our, we have to bring in the components that we use um, to build the, the speakers for the ventilators um, on what's called List 3A, and this is part of the Section 301 trade action against China. We pay a 25% tariff, a tax, on all of those parts that come into the United States to build product here in the United States. So whereas our competitors who may also supply speakers for ventilators build their speakers in China or some other place in Asia, if they build it in China, they pay only a 7.5% tariff. Hmm. Um, and um, if they build it somewhere else, they don't pay anything. Of course, so not only does it put us at a competitive disadvantage, but now we also have a cash flow problem. Right. Because right now, cash is king and businesses are really that, that's the beauty of the PPP loan. Right. Is it forgivable? And so um, now on one hand, we're receiving funds from the PPP, you know, and on the other hand, we're paying out massive amounts of tariffs to the Customs and Border Patrol. Right. So, so maybe some kind of waiver would be would it would do a lot to help free up cash right now. I'm just I'm make sure people caught your point, which is that if you source your parts in China, and, and import them to make the product here, you pay a 25% tariff. If somebody just pulled in the whole thing from China, it'd be 7.5%. Would you ever be right. able to source uh, those parts to make the, even those components here in America? Well, it, it takes time. And the thing with, with medical devices is, um, you know, once a product's approved, changes um, happen very slowly you know, through a regulation process. So it's not a fast process to go through. Um, eventually, it, it could be done, but it would take a long time. And right now, um, the companies, companies making ventilators really don't want to be dealing with changes and things like that. They want to ramp up. They want to produce these as quickly as possible. And we want to be able to do that as well. Yeah. Dan, before you go, uh, as you said, you were pleased you've been able to receive the PPP funds. They, they have helped your business. But you're concerned about what happens after June 30, because uh, roughly speaking, that's when the money runs out, right? That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the thing is, is, there's so much uncertainty with the economy. I mean, what happens to all of us? who've now been given this shot of liquidity through through the end of June for payroll and rent and utilities and so forth. What if the economy doesn't come back after that? So um, I, I'm, I'm concerned not just for my business, but I'm concerned for our entire supply chain and for a lot of businesses in the United States of what happens after June 30th. Yeah, and I'm just going to leave it there with that question hanging in the air uh, so people can feel the gravity of it and they're all experiencing it themselves too, of course. Dan, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. Dan DeGree is the CEO of Misco Speakers. Still ahead, look at shares of Amazon. They're still hanging on to about a 1.5% gain here. They prepared to report results after the bell today. We'll get you the key numbers to listen for in that report next. And shares of McDonald's are now trading lower after reporting mixed results. They also suspended their buyback program and said they've cut back on CapEx. They're down about 1.2%. The CEO acknowledging consumer behavior will not be the same after this pandemic. But he says McDonald's is ready. I think digital, particularly mobile order pay and maybe the ability uh, to go to curbside, which we have uh, across most of our major markets, I do think you're going to probably see those uh, grow just uh, as consumers uh, come out of this. And and there's going to be a change, I think, in terms of how consumers uh, go about their daily lives.
Welcome back. It's not just Apple. Amazon is also on deck with earnings after the bell today. The company's been a standout throughout this crisis as demand for delivered goods has soared. The stock is up 29 percent in the past three months. Deirdre Bosa is here with the key things investors are looking for. Deirdre. Hey, Kelly, the big question for Amazon is its bottom line. Now, the street is certainly expecting revenues to surge amid the pandemic. But at what cost? Consider some of these costs. Uh, wage increases costing some $700 million. 170,000 workers are being added. Fulfillment centers, they need new equipment and procedures to monitor and manage staff safely. So to that point, Kelly, earnings estimates are all over the place. EPS ranging from $4.68 to $7.82. On the other hand, keep in mind that it wasn't so long ago that Amazon wasn't even turning a consistent profit and few like to bet against Bezos. So strong revenue numbers may actually be enough to keep the rally going. As you mentioned, shares are up 30% this year and Amazon still firmly in that trillion dollar club. Deirdre, since we have you here, yesterday we uh, talked, had a bit of a debate actually about the sharing economy and how well it would be able to weather coronavirus. Today, more news, uh, not very good news on that front. That's right, Kelly. The hits keep coming. Lime announcing that it is laying off 13 percent of its staff. And this comes on top of earlier cuts. In a letter to employees, its CEO, Brad Bow, talks about going from a next generation micro mobility startup that was on its way to profitability to halting operations in 99 percent of its markets worldwide. Kelly, we also talked about SoftBank and Masasan, the sort of kingmaker for the shared economy with his hands in so many different companies. It had put out its earnings expectations a few weeks ago, warning that it was on track for its worst annual performance in the company's history. And just over the last 24 hours, saying that WeWork losses are actually going to make that performance even worse than they initially expected. Kelly, those earnings are coming up in mid-May, May 14th. And it could tell us a lot more about how the sharing economy is faring. Yeah. Back to you. Watch out for the grizzly behind you, uh, Deirdre. Thanks, Deirdre Bosa. That does it for the exchange today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. I will join Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch next hour, and it's going to be a big one. ConocoPhillips CEO Ryan Lance will join us to discuss what's going on in the oil patch and whether he's planning to follow Shell's footsteps and cut Conoco's dividend. And from oil to coffee, the CEO of Dunkin', David Hoffman, will tell us what the future of his restaurant looks like as more states reopen. It's all ahead with Power Lunch after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.